0: at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. Did you ever look at a situation, look at a person in a place, and know exactly what was going to happen? Just see the bad thing over the horizon see it with absolute clarity everyone running toward this future and even though you know how this will end you can't think of anything you can do to stop it wow today in snap judgment soon as you think you know what is going to occur the universe has other plans from wnyc studios and snap judgment's underground lair i am so excited for you to hear this one a story from our friends at the amazing Ear Hustle podcast. And we're calling it, Tell Christy I Love Her. We're going to get right into the story, but I need to say this first. Oftentimes on Snap Judgment, if we think it is warranted, we'll give a content warning before a story. So I'm giving you a content warning right now because of a violent act, a very violent act that does occur. But at the same time, I got to let you know that in some ways, This is not a violent story. In so many ways, it's exactly the opposite. Snap Judgment.
1: I had a very ritualized process that I went through. It was almost like every day preparing almost for a battle. I had a silhouette target up in the basement and I'd spend five minutes drawing and dry firing against that target. I would run scenarios in my head Uh, in spare moments, you know, about, well, what happens if some guy comes out of the alley and points a gun at my patrol car? What am I going to do? If I'm in a grocery or, you know, a liquor store, you know, getting a Coke or something and somebody bursts in with a shotgun, what am I going to do? If I'm on a burglary call and, you know, I find a suspect crawling through a window, what am I going to do? It was a, a perpetual, constant state of preparation. And when I got in that car, I was ready to go. You're now tuned in to
2: Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. I'm Erlon Woods.
3: And I'm Nigel Poor. On this episode, a violent night and its decades-long aftermath.
1: We piled in the car and headed out to my beat. On our way out there, we received a call of shots fired in the area of Brook and Madison. Pretty, sadly, routine call for that area. We were uh, heading northbound on Madison... We saw a light colored pinto with two heads up through the rear view mirror. Uh, We lit up the car, told the dispatcher where we were at, and then I had my trainee approach the car uh, because I wanted to see how he he did.
4: I was sleeping in my car. It's late at night, and uh, as I'm sleeping, I hear a tap on the driver's side window that woke me up, and I turned and looked, and it was a sheriff's officer. So he asked us, could we step out the car? When I stepped out the car, it was the police telling me to put my hands on the car. So I did. He put his hand in my pocket first, put out an inhaler, and then the next pocket, he didn't reach in, he tapped it, and he said, it's a gun over here.
1: He yells, I've got a gun, and as soon as he said that, Jason broke free from him and began running north through the yards. I started chasing Jason.
4: Turned around and I ran. I jumped the fence of the house I was parked in front of. Police chased me. The other police ran around the back way to cut me off.
1: When I got around into the backyard, I saw Jason trying to force his way into a house, the house that he'd run behind. He was kind of a dilemma. Um, I didn't see a gun in his hands. My partner had said he had a gun. So I wasn't entirely sure that my partner hadn't gotten the gun away from him. My other problem was I had no idea who was in the house behind him. I can't use deadly force. I've got to get close to him to use, you know, some sort of uh, physical force or impact weapons or pepper spray.
4: He pepper sprayed me, telling me to stop resisting. He was trying to arrest me. While he was struggling with me, I seen his baton had failed close by me, and I thought about grabbing his baton, hitting him, and running. And I realized I still had this gun on me, and I took the gun out of my pocket, turned around, put it to his neck, and pulled the trigger.
1: There was a bright flash of light, and then I could feel nothing.
3: Tom Morgan was 39 and had been a cop in Bakersfield for 13 years. That night, he was on patrol with his trainee, Dave.
2: Jason Samuel was 17 years old. He was a runaway, homeless, sleeping in his car, and now he had shot a cop, fired his gun point blank into Tom's neck.
3: The gun was a 410 caliber Derringer. It sprayed pellets like a shotgun, and a bunch of those pellets were now lodged in Tom's neck. A few also lodged against his spine and paralyzed him momentarily.
1: And I was laying there, and I can remember being very frustrated uh, because I couldn't fight back, and yet I was conscious. Uh, It was as if if I was, like, floating on a saltwater bed or something. I, I had no sensation. And then suddenly I could move. I sat up, looked up, and saw Jason standing over me. I reached into my vest pocket where I kept my backup weapon and pulled it out and pointed it at him.
4: And I've seen that he was alive, pointing the weapon at me. So I ran over to him. I hit him a couple of times in the face, snatched the gun from him and put his gun to his head and pulled the trigger.
3: Was he unconscious at this point?
4: No, he was still alive. He was watching me do... This to him. That's crazy. Yes.
3: He wasn't struggling. I mean, he was. No,
4: he was just watching me trying to kill him. Like, he was so at weak. You and yes.
3: Eye to eye, you guys. Yes. Were, and what was going through your mind?
4: Trying to kill him. He was trying to kill me, so I wanted to kill him. So that's how I was thinking. Like he was trying to kill me, but I'm gonna kill him first.
1: He grabbed it out of my hand, turned it around, pointed at me, and pulled the trigger. He was unfamiliar with the weapon, so the weapon didn't discharge. He racks the slide, a round pops out, a fresh round goes in, he points it back at me and pulls the trigger again. The round still doesn't go off because he still hasn't engaged the safety or the cocking mechanism. He does that one more time. I reached around and I found a stick, you know, like a board that was nearby that I felt, and I took the stick and I, I hit him in the head with it kind of, you know, staggers back a little bit, comes back and punches me right dead center in the eyes. I fall back. By the time I lean back up again, he's gone. I got up. I got around to the front of the building. Officers found me. Actually, Dave, I think, was the first one to come across me. Um, I have this recollection of telling Dave to tell Christy I loved her. And I remember thinking, you know, every single breath I took on the way into the hospital was like the last one. I just spent the time into the hospital, you know, just trying to concentrate and just eke out every breath I was able to take. As the ambulance is backing up, I remember seeing the bright light it was the emergency sign glowing and i remember thinking okay i've done my job i've got this far it's it's up to somebody else
5: it was like about midnight and i had just gotten home from a class that i was in in college and just as i'm about to get in bed my doorbell rings
2: This is Tom's wife,
5: Christy. Nothing could happen at midnight when your doorbell rings. So I grabbed a gun and I went to the front door. And I saw Doug, he's a friend of ours who was a sheriff's deputy. He's standing there in uniform. And I just start panicking. I know something's wrong with Tom. I know it, I know it, I know it. So we have a deadbolt on the door that has to be unlocked with this key that like hangs up here on a nail. And I had to reach up there to get it, and I drop it about—I can't even hold on to it. You know, I just keep dropping it, and I can't—then I can't get it in the thing to turn it. I'm like, you know, it feels like my fingers just won't work right. And I finally get the door open, and Doug comes in and tells me that, you know, that Tom has been shot. (laughs) The last thing I heard, he's still alive. You need to get dressed. We need to go immediately. When I got to the emergency room that night, uh, they were working on Tom. They eventually let me go in to see him. And when I walked in, he was not conscious, but his head was so swollen. It was like twice the size of normal. He looked. He looked horrible it looks like maybe he couldn't even how could he be alive if he looked like that (sighs) sorry that's just a really horrible image for me
0: when we return Tom wakes in the hospital to a whole new reality snap judgment the Ear Hustle Spotlight Stay tuned. Support for stamp judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Spotlight. When last we left, Officer Tom Morgan had just been shot and lay in a hospital bed. Tom's wife, Christy, rushed to be at his side. Ear Hustle co-host Nigel Poor spoke to Tom about what happened.
3: Sometime not too much later, you saw something that was on the news, and um, you saw your wife walking down. I'm thinking, no.
1: Yeah. Yeah that 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 is always just. The doors open up, and uh, the camera's shooting down the corridor, and it, all, both sides of the corridor are lined up all my coworkers and, you know, friends, and and walking down the middle of the corridor, you know, facing away from me, you know, with her hands, arms crossed like this is, is Christy, and when I watched that, I thought, but for just a millimeter here, a, a half second there, you know, she might have been alone like that for the rest of her life. And uh, that's the image that I have when I think about my responsibility after that happened. Because Christy didn't sign up for that.
3: Yeah, yeah I might, I, when I read that, I was really taken aback and it seemed like the most beautiful description of love to me. <laughs> and then you... It's the one time you kind of mention a what-if, a different outcome, and it's about Christy, it's not about you.
1: I mean, that's the kind of wonderful and terrible thing about all of this. It's... There's very little that's motivated me more strongly to, to be a better human being than that image and that thought, and yet I you know, blithely went off to work every day knowing that I could cause that. When I left, I always promised her I would be okay. And that felt like a broken promise when I had to watch that.
2: Tom was in critical care for a month, then he recovered at home for about a year before returning to work, and he couldn't go back to regular cop work, so instead, he started training other cops.
3: Jason was taken into custody the night of the shooting, and about a year later, he was on trial. The courtroom was crowded with Tom's colleagues.
4: I was nervous when I seen all the police that entered the room, because it was like 50 polices that came in, and I'm like, damn, you know, what's going on? Why
3: were there so many police there?
4: To support him. I was intimidated, for sure. They had Tom's shirt that he was shot in on a big poster or platform or something. And it was all bloody. And when people got up when when they spoke, the shirt was right there next to him. One of those people testifying against Jason was Tom. When I had heard Tom testify at the trial, was my first time ever knowing who this man was. Tom had been sitting in the
2: courtroom with the prosecutors during the whole trial, but Jason hadn't recognized him from the night of the crime.
4: And he was there the whole time I was going to trial, and I just thought he was another attorney, because I didn't know what he looked like. And I noticed he had a raspy voice, because I shot him in the neck. Jason
2: Samuel was found guilty. Before he was sentenced, Christy got up and read her victim impact statement. It said in part, quote, Samuel was a proponent of crime and violence in today's society and a very real threat to anyone with whom he comes in contact. I hope the sentence he receives today would make him rethink the choices he made.
4: I felt that was, she was right about everything she said in that uh, impact statement. I wasn't hurt by it. It wasn't anything nobody can say to make me feel any worse than what I already have felt. Mm. So I was already numb to everything that was going on around me. I just wanted it over. I just wanted to start my time. Jason was sentenced to 19 years to life.
5: I was in such a, a dark, deep space but i I couldn't even see outside that, and how long did that dark darkness last for you? The first ten years were heavy. Mm-hmm. The violence you know of it it totally destroyed my sense of security, and I was afraid that one of his gangbanger buddies was going to come by and finish off the job, or you know, just I, I wouldn't even leave the house. I mean, for the first ten years, I hardly ever left my house. And and what was the, what was a typical day like for you those during those ten years? Laying on the couch, watching TV, just not doing anything. I mean, nothing. Not eating. <laughs> N- um, you remember how skinny I got. Yeah. Just checking out, but I just yeah. kind of stopped living. Probably,
2: I know you know getting shot. Period is, is bad, but I know it probably feels like oh he got shot in the arm. That would have been okay, but to be shot in the neck, you it know, was so
5: personal. Right. You know that seemed so personal. You're you're exactly right. It was so personal, and I was so angry at Jason. I wanted to kill him myself. I wanted him dead.
2: To understand why things unfolded the way they did on April 24, 1997, the night Jason shot Tom, it's useful to know about something that happened to Tom 10 years
3: earlier. In 1987, Tom got stabbed while making an arrest. He says he didn't follow the procedure for securing a suspect that he had learned in the academy.
1: After the third stab wound went into me, I pushed him away. He fell backwards. I drew and fired my gun. The first round went through his chest, into his liver. Uh, He sprung up as if nothing had happened. He was on a high dose of methamphetamine. Uh, Started to run across the street. Um, uh, I fired twice more before he made it across the street. He stumbled, got back up, ran down to the end of the block, and I fired the last of six rounds at him as he turned the corner. Uh, I found him taking his last breath in the alley about uh, maybe a quarter mile away from where the first incident occurred.
3: And I, I just have to put a point. So he died? Yes, he did. He and you're saying that you feel responsible because you didn't follow the procedure?
1: In essence, yes. Yeah. I, I feel my failure contributed to that, my being unable to take him into custody. I expected to be disciplined, at least talked to afterwards. You know, you really need to you know, get better. I I, I was given a medal.
2: Tom was starting to have misgivings about
1: what the job was doing to him and his colleagues. My approach to my job at one point in my career was when I'd get into a household and I've got 12 calls backed up and somebody starts telling me all of, like, their problems. What I would tell people sometimes is, if you don't see the solution to your problem on my gun belt, then you called the wrong person. I just need to get the job done, get the call taken care of so I can get back in my car and go to the next one. And, uh, you know, as harsh as that seems, I think that you'll find in the heart of most cops, that's how they approach their job. You feel much more like you're just, you know, going from one disaster to the next.
3: I can totally see why that would be necessary. But that's one of the saddest things I've heard in a long time. To me that's heartbreaking. I, I wonder about the toll that takes on an individual after 10 years, after 20 years.
1: Oh, it destroys some people. And they in turn, you know, come on and destroy other people's lives. Yeah. I mean I, I, I have no doubt of that. Yeah. I mean I could kind of palpably feel my humanity ebbing as I was doing the job. You begin to mm-hmm. become very cynical about the people you're dealing with. and. I mean, it's just an odd position to be in where, you know, disasters seem to be, like, commonplace. In
5: 1998,
2: Jason started serving time in High Desert State Prison in California, And over the years, Jason found himself thinking about Tom.
4: This man, right, I thought about him. Ever since I seen him in the courtroom, I had seen other white officers, like COs with mustaches. It reminded me of him. I think about him. We had this connection. Um, I shot this man. I tried to take his life in in a very brutal way. Even though it was a negative connection, no matter what, I was connected to this person, and I wanted to know how he felt about me still after all these years.
3: Yeah, can you talk about that more? What is that connection like?
4: It's like a marriage, kind of. That's how I look at it, because we, like, bonded forever. A uh, life or death uh, experience that we had together that that's going to be there forever. I wonder, is he doing well? And, you know, did he get past everything that i done to him? And because I didn't know anything, what was going on with him, and he probably didn't know anything went on with me.
3: Jason was transferred to San Quentin in 2014. In 2016, he went up in front of the parole board for the first time.
4: I was scared the whole time, um, shaking, trembling, the whole time I was in the board hearing. They knew I was scared. I kept telling them that I was nervous, and I just wanted it to be over at the time. You never know who's going to show up at
2: your parole hearing. For Jason's hearing... Tom showed up. It was the first time they'd seen each other since he was sentenced. Our co-host, New York, asked him about this. How did you
4: feel when you saw the opposite you shot at your parole boy hearing? Uh, I felt guilty for what I've done to him. I felt shame, and I just wanted to tell him I was sorry when I first seen him. But I, they was, told me not to look at him, and of course I had to see him. I hadn't seen him in At this time, almost 19 years, so I wanted to see what he looked like. Yeah, what did
3: he look
4: like? He looked older. He didn't look the same. He's gray. He had gray mustache now. He had gray hair, so he looked a lot older from what I remember during my sentencing.
3: Tom had come to the parole hearing prepared. He brought the same shirt that was featured so prominently at Jason's trial.
1: The shirt that I was wearing that night is encased in glass. And it's just like it was when it was cut off me. It's covered with blood, pieces of tissue, uh, my pen, my badge, my name tag, the notepad still in the pocket. And I brought that with me. And I was going to argue that he, you know, be denied parole because, you know, I kind of thought that was my responsibility. But then uh, when he walked in, I remember, you know, writing on my notepad, you know, not what I expected. I was expecting this buffed out, tough you know, mean gangbanger to come strutting in. Uh, But instead, you know, this kind of downtrodden 38-year-old man who works in the laundry and wears glasses, and he's a little overweight, and he's the last thing from intimidating.
2: At parole hearings, they talk in detail about a prisoner's life and the circumstances that might have led him into crime. And Jason's parole hearing was the first time that Tom heard about how Jason grew up. We asked Jason to talk a bit about his upbringing.
4: When I was younger, my mother was addicted to drugs, and my father was selling drugs or in prison. I'm at the school basically just hoping that I can eat, you know, that I have food in the house.
3: Mm, Okay. And what about your siblings? Who took care of your siblings?
4: Well, I was taking care of my siblings from 7 to 10.
3: How'd you take care of them?
4: By cutting lines uh, with a push lawnmower. I used to knock on people's doors, ask them to cut their line for $5 for the front, $5 for the back.
3: And what'd you do with that money?
4: I bought food. I went to the local store and bought bread, bologna, cheese, and took it home and— fed my brothers and sisters.
3: So you were like the parent? Yes. Was there any, like, physical or emotional abuse when you were growing up from your parents?
4: Well, never from my dad because he wasn't really around. I didn't meet him too later, and then he really was like a friend instead of a dad. But my mother, she was very verbal and physical abusive. And that's doing because she was using drugs, so.
3: His mom lost custody of Jason when he was 10, and he went to live in a group home. From there, he moved into a foster home for a while, and then ended up living with an aunt.
2: And like a lot of young black men, Jason saw cops being rough and unfair
4: with the people in his neighborhood. Well, I never liked the police. I never respected them. To me, there was another gang, Um, this more organized gang. So that's how I looked at them. By the
3: time he was 14, Jason was in a gang.
4: So I hung out with these guys that was around my age, a little older, and I was getting their attention that I wasn't getting from home, feeling like I was being accepted by my peers. The older guys, when they was, I got the acceptance from them, it was more like there was a father figure there.
2: At the parole hearing, Jason said his gang was, quote, the first crew that accepted me for who I was, They didn't care that I was poor or my mother was on drugs or that I was a foster kid.
1: I remember listening to him talk about his life just to hear his story and hear him tell it with such kind of openness and willingness and thinking, oh my God, you know, this is just tragic.
3: Toward the end of the hearing, Tom got up to speak.
1: I told Jason, I don't think I... I need to forgive you because I understand what happened. He and I were like two rocket ships on the same trajectory from different directions. He'd been raised and trained in an environment that caused him to react exactly like you would expect a human being to react given his training and environment. I was doing exactly the same thing, reacting exactly how I was trained. To me, it was almost inevitable when it happened. I don't need to forgive him, you know. I don't need if he wants it, you know, if that's something that would be of value to him, I would give it.
2: Tom had arrived at the hearing intending to argue flat out that the board should deny Jason's parole. By the end, he was much more conflicted.
3: He told the board that he trusted them to make the right decision. The board denied Jason's parole.
2: There was something else that Jason said at the hearing that really stuck with Tom. It was about an experience Jason had in San Quentin.
1: He talked about a group that he'd been involved in where a retired police officer had come in and had a conversation with Jason. And Jason said that when he told this officer what he had done, that he'd shot, you know, another uh, officer... Uh, This officer continued to speak with him, treat him like a human being. You know, they had a conversation about what happened. And when Jason was telling that story at the first parole hearing, he started to cry and show this genuine emotion. I could see how deeply that moved him. And I, I remember after the hearing thinking, wow, you know, if somebody he doesn't even know could have that kind of emotional impact on him, you know, what if I were to do the same thing? You know, what if I were to, you know, speak with him and agree to talk with him?
0: When Snap returns, Tom comes face-to-face with Jason for the very first time. When Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Spotlight continues. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the Ear Hustle Spotlight. Tell Christy I love her. Jason Samuel had been serving a life sentence for the attempted murder of Officer Tom Morgan, and after nearly 20 years in prison, Jason went to his first parole hearing and was denied.
3: A year and a half later, Jason was up for parole for a second time. Tom showed up again, and Jason expected the same thing to play out.
4: I was waiting for him to to deny me getting out of prison because that's what I was uh, thinking that was going to happen. But it didn't come.
1: I told Jason, I said, you know, I appreciate all the work you've done, but I would like to talk to you. I'd like to, you know, have a conversation with you, sit down, and and if there's ever anything that I could do to help you, I would like to extend that offer to help you because it's a parole hearing. He couldn't even look at me while I'm saying this.
4: He was telling the commissioners how, he would do anything to help me get out of prison. He wanted to come see me, and I, sh- I was shocked. Like I was so in shock and disbelief that this was really going on. I'm like, damn, this is really happening right now. I couldn't really grasp what was really going on. But when after I went to my cell, I couldn't stop crying. I'm talking about. I was like, wow, what just happened? And some amazing happened. Like. And uh, I just feel blessed. Um, that happened for me.
2: Tom's feelings may have changed a lot, but the parole boards hadn't. Jason was denied parole again.
3: Tom wanted to be in contact with Jason, but incarcerated people cannot have any contact with their victims. It's prohibited.
2: There's a workaround, though. But it's a process. Mm -hmm. There's something called the Victim-Offender Dialogue. It's a restorative justice program where victims meet offenders.
3: Both the victim and the offender work with a mediator to facilitate this very delicate process. Sometimes the communication will be in letters, but occasionally they meet in person.
2: Once a victim decides they want to meet their offender and they have a mediator, they also need to identify a support person.
3: And I think the logic is, this is going to be a really hard experience, and you don't know how hard the meeting is going to be. So a support person is recommended to ease this potentially traumatic process.
1: I'm sitting in bed, and I'm going, Christy, you know, I'm trying to figure out who to be a support person, you know. And I look at her, and she goes, well, what about me? (laughs) It
3: was a beautiful moment. (laughs)
1: and I mean it just it it took my breath away I mean up to that point I was pretty sure if he'd walked in the door and she had a gun you know she'd have pulled the trigger on it I mean happily Uh, but in that moment I was so proud of her and, and a bit ashamed of myself that I didn't appreciate how strong she really was I of course that I kept getting surprised over the next several weeks.
3: On May 11th, 2018, Tom, Christine, Martina, the woman who ran the dialogue, went to see Jason in San Quentin.
2: A CNN
4: film crew was there to record what happened. I didn't feel nervous at first until the actual day of meeting you, And that's when all the nerves came in and... And I was like, I don't know if I was ready to do something like this. It was the biggest moment of my life right now to sit across from a man I try to kill in such a fashion. And I almost, be honest with you, I almost chickened out. Tom and Jason met in the San Quentin Chapel. When I first walked in there, he was standing up and he smiled at me. And all that fear and went away. And I asked him for a hug. And I told him I was sorry. I felt warm, i felt um liberated, like this weight has been lifted and and i felt love i mean, I felt compassion and i felt i felt all the senses i think you you feel from a father if you was if your daddy told you that he loved you and and you and he meant that, and you know that's how I felt like happy.
3: Christy was watching all of this on a TV monitor that CNN had set up just outside the chapel. She was Tom's support person, but she didn't want to be in the room with Jason. She didn't think she was ready for it.
5: One of the first things that I noticed about Jason was how remorseful he was. That was one of the first things that touched me when I saw that. And If a victim could see that the person was remorseful, can you imagine how much of their life they could save not having to wonder?
1: Yeah.
5: they could think this person is at least sorry for what they did, that would mean so much.
1: When she was sitting watching that video of him talking to me, and he started sobbing, you know, know, apologizing, and when she came out to me at the break and said, you know, I want to talk to him, I mean, I'll never ever forget that moment. I mean, it was, you know, if I live to be a thousand years old, I'll never see a moment of more perfect grace than (laughs) her, the courage and bravery it took for her to go, well, you know, I've suffered all of this time under this, but I still want to go out and meet this man.
4: When she came out the room, she came out walking real fast towards me, and I stood up, put my hands behind my back, because I automatically thought that she wanted to harm me, like get revenge on them. And so I was prepared for for her to slap me, to hit me, to let her get her frustrations out on me, and I was cool with that. But I was shocked and surprised that instead of a hit or a slap, I, she wanted to hug me, and that was like the best moment of the whole dialogue right there. And it was very – excuse me, Um it was special for me um, because this woman hated me so much, and uh, I didn't know how to to to, to um, explain in words that that wasn't me that that harmed her her husband that way, and um, when she hugged me. Uh, I know she had forgiven me um, wholeheartedly. So it was special for me. Still special for me. This
3: is the moment where Jason and Christy met. The audio is from the CNN documentary.
4: Thank you. Seeing me who I am today.
5: I see you, and I'm proud of who you are, everything you're doing. Thank you. Thank you for meeting me. And I kept telling everybody, I feel so light. I feel so light. I feel like I could fly or something. Just Jason acknowledging and, and just... He was he was ashamed of what he had done, and he showed that, and that meant the world to me. It changed everything. Everything. That much hate will destroy a person if you don't let it go. <laughs> yeah, I had to let it go.
3: About a year after the dialogue, Jason went in front of the parole board for the third time. Christy was there, too, to support him. And he was found suitable. Now, what's the most delicious meal you've had
4: since you've been out? Ooh, that's too hard.
3: We caught up with Jason recently, a few months after he got out of
4: San Quentin. I'm having a problem with that right now, like I eat too much, because everybody want to take you out to eat. Praise the
2: yeah. Lord, man. Somebody else, <laughs> <laughs> Allah, everything, Hey, uh, that's all they do.
3: I yeah. know, I know. Erland went through the same thing. Yeah,
4: I'm talking about the game, 20 pounds is up in there. I know you can see it. You just ain't saying nothing. <laughs> no, you
3: look great. Mm-mm. No, I said you look yeah. taller.
4: Yeah.
2: For Jason, for Tom, and especially for Christy, The victim-offender dialogue did exactly what it was supposed to do. It helped them heal, and it gave Christy her life back.
3: It also got her very into baking.
5: It's become kind of a healing ritual for her. She'll make these very elaborate desserts for friends. I think about them the whole time I'm baking or creating whatever it is and I think mm-hmm. about the good things about this person. And my kitchen, I have it set up perfectly the way I want it. It's not very big, but it's it's perfect. I have two large windows. The windows are almost always open. My dogs are laying over by the side and I just create this ambiance in there. It's all about like zesting oranges and smelling things cooking in the oven. It's just it's like this whole experience for me me. And then they come to my kitchen to pick it up. And then I tell them the story of forgiveness with Jason and how that I now just pour my love into this baking. And I think about all the good things about them. And it's just all about happiness and forgiveness. So what is your relationship like with Tom and Christy now?
4: Oh, still, we still have a great relationship. We text each other every day. We actually got to meet one time me and Christy, because Tom couldn't come because his job. But me and Christy met up. We went to Planks. We bowled and we had a good time. Then we went to Ben and Jerry's. Had ice cream.
2: Has she cooked you any dessert
4: yet? Yeah. She well that day we met. She cooked me oatmeal raisin cookies with chocolate chip with chocolate chip raisin cookies. And it was a whole lot of them too. It was a lot of cookies. I had to share them cookies because I wasn't gonna be able to eat all those cookies. So yeah, they was good too. She makes stuff that look like Martha Stewart. <laughs>
5: like, she might be a little better than Martha yeah. Stewart. <laughs> I've seen that page. Yeah, it's cool. She, she,
2: her presentation yeah. is on point. Yes.
3: Thanks to Jason, Tom, and Christy for sharing their stories. And you didn't hear her on tape, but none of this would have happened without Martina Lutz Schneider. She's the person who helped Jason and Tom to be in touch and led them and Christy through the victim-offender dialogue. Martina works with a restorative justice group called the Ahimsa Collective.
2: Also, thanks to Jason Cohen and CNN for letting us use some of their audio from their story. It's called Officer Down" from the program The Redemption Project. Our outside producers are me, Erlon Woods, and old boy, Bruce Wallace.
3: Aaron Wade is our digital producer.
2: Social media looking great.
3: It is. Curtis Fox is our senior producer. And Julie Shapiro is our executive producer for Radiotopia. We want to thank Warden Ron Davis. And as you know, every episode has to be approved by this guy here.
6: I don't know how many times in American media history where a perpetrator and a law enforcement official who were intimately involved in the dynamics that were told in the story, uh, how many times they've sat across from each other and you've gotten the intimate details of that on the opposite end of how the relationship has evolved and bonded beyond that. So. Definitely was probably the most thought-provoking episode of the season. And so this is Lieutenant Sam Robinson telling everyone in the world that I approve this episode.
0: Big, huge thanks to everyone at Ear Hustle for that incredible story. Ear Hustle comes to us by way of PRX's Radiotopia. Find out more and listen to that amazing catalog of stories at EarHustleSQ.com. I know this team is working hard right now on their fifth season. It comes out this March, and I cannot wait. Ear Hustle, it's made possible by support from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, working to redesign the justice system by building power and opportunities for communities impacted by incarceration. And snappers, big news again, because I am so happy to announce that one of Ear Hustle's co-creators and sound designers, Antoine Williams, he was just recently released from San Quentin, I first met Antoine back in San Quentin in 2016. So I am overjoyed. Overjoyed over the moon to meet him again right now, right here at Snap Judgment Studios. How
6: you doing? I'm alright.
4: How are you? It's been
0: a while. Antoine, it is so great to see you on the other side. It, it is really so great. is. Welcome to Snap Judgment. You can see the studios, everything like that. Um, the last time I saw you was in the Media Lab in San Quentin. Mm-hmm. And you're making music. And those San Quentin walls are thick. What's it like to make music
6: on the outside? Oh, to make music on the outside? Way better than making music on the inside. <laughs> 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 oh, man. I'll get a, I, I'm get. blessed. Um, I'm blessed to get up and have an opportunity to sit in the comfort of my own home and make music with no restrictions. I don't have to worry about your recall or count time or if I have to share the computer. And it is just, it's been a beautiful experience. I love it. It's been surreal.
0: You also brought some music with you today. Mm-hmm. Um, can you intro this song that we're about to hear mm-hmm. right now?
6: My name is Antoine Banks-Williams, and you're about to listen to my song called Powerful. Alright, alright. Let me get my zone, zone, y'all. Hey. Hey. We gonna get to the truth today, man. For real. Uh uh. 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 Hey, hey, hey. Look, I think it's sad, but I owe you the truth I'm in my 30s and we gotta do more for the youth I know we can only give all the things we consume So it hurt when I see they got their nose to a spoon Why follow the rules when you ain't playing that game Plus your mama and your daddy is both one and the same How are parents and the children so close in they age That outside looking in, y'all develop the same I remember when 18 was grown And thinking age was a pass for me to do what I won't. I don't wanna go home Plus, me going in the house ain't gonna give me no dough. I got it. faith in this almighty dollar, but it's got people kill or blindly be let to slaughter. Go without, it. never not to tell me who I be without it. I want it cause everybody got it. So, what if that's childish? That's the mindset that is plaguing our people and desires to be on top. Just so we not beneath you. you no less than, greater, or equal. equal. You're unique. Stand out and allow me to see you See I found power where power didn't exist No tits focus, I see it for what it is And this is what you call a man fighting for glory And you stupid if you try to ignore me I'm powerful without it Cause I can never say what you need I can only say what I see And I can say what I feel And I feel the world's replacing the real What that get us lost and get killed And it get us lost and get killed I can never say what you need I can only say what I see and I can say what I feel And I feel the world's replacing in the real What the that get us lost and get killed And, and it I get us wanna lost and killed to No lie, I wanna bring the world together Now everybody wanna live fast and die young But fast money goin' just as fast as it comes I just wanna change the world forever No lie, I wanna bring the world together now everybody want to live fast and die, you But fast money going just as fast as it comes. I just want to change the world forever. want to
4: change
0: the world forever. Yeah. That was Antoine Banks-Williams with his song, Powerful. It's available right now. Please follow this man. We're going to have a link to all that is Antoine on our site snapjudgment.org I know I know it's that time once again but understand this the story it is never over never and if you made a resolution to have more amazing storytelling more love more life more music more connection in your life make it happen subscribe right now to the amazing Snap Judgment podcast more stories than you can throw a stick at it might change your life snapjudgment.org snapjudgment.org that was brought to you by the team that always keeps their heads in the clouds. Pull him down for just a moment. The Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich, Pat Masidi Miller, Anna Susman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Liz Mack, Liza Smith, Leon Morimoto, Lauren Newsom, Marissa Dodge, Flo Wiley, Nancy Lopez, John Facile, and Nika Singh. And listen. There are those drippers and cranks out there that will try to convince you that this show, that this is the news. Well, this is not the news. No it's the news. In fact, you count every grain of sand on the beach just to figure out the sound of one hand clapping or whatever it was you bet your cousin Ernie at the bar last night. You could do that and you would still, still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.